Hey, this morning we are concluding our series titled Fear Not. If you have not been with us uh, throughout the series and you'd like to catch up, I strongly encourage you to do so. I think it's been a really great series. You can do that either through uh, downloading our app or subscribing to our podcast or going on our website on our media tab. You can listen to all the messages there to get caught up. Tomorrow is Christmas Eve, if you did not already know. Um, We have three services tomorrow, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 11 o'clock p.m. A lot of people come in their pajamas at the 11 o'clock, so don't feel like you need to dress up for for that, but um, it's a really, really fun opportunity. Um, There's still options to, opportunities to invite friends and family and neighbors to join you uh, tomorrow. There are invitations available in the foyer and also in the back hallway. A couple ornaments left as well if you'd like to put one of those upon your tree. Uh, this season. And one thing that I want to make mention of, if you are kid-safe, we actually still need child care. Part of the reason we still need child care is because this flu that has been going around, it is destroying homes. Uh, it's just, it's crazy the amount of people that are out um, because of the flu that is hitting so hard. So if you feel healthy and you want to hold some babies for an hour tomorrow, uh, at either a four o'clock or 11 o'clock service, I really, what did I say, 11? Four o'clock, six o'clock, yeah, no child care at 11. That's because it's going to be uh, actually, a lot of kids actually do 10 to 11, but they usually sleep on their mother's lap or father's lap or something. So, um, But if you would like to help, uh, please let us know because we could use, still use that help. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say this because one of, one of the things that I think you should be aware of is that when you serve in our kids' ministry, you are providing a context for people to hear the gospel. And so you could be the person uh, serving in our kids' ministry. This isn't manipulative at all. <laughs> you could be the person that helps to change somebody's life. And I mean that sincerely um, by providing a context for someone to, to put their kid in care so that they could sit in this room and hear the gospel tomorrow. Uh, you have no idea what kind of impact that could have. So uh, if you are able uh, to be at either the four or the six to help with childcare, please let us know. That would be great. And then next week, we only have one service at our 1030 hour next week. We're going to cram as many people in here as possible. Um, and we are going to celebrate baptisms next week. It's like our favorite week of the whole year. Uh, we only do this twice a year, and next week is one of them. So at 1030, uh, you guys don't have to be afraid of missing out because you usually come to the 1030 anyway, probably. So you're going to be here, and it's going to be such a great week. Stories are going to be shared. It's, oh, we just love, love, love baptism. We have 10 people signed up to be baptized so far. And you could, yeah, absolutely. And you guys could, um, we could, we could still add to that even before then. So please let me know. How many of you guys have seen the movie Inside Out? It's one of my favorite Pixar movies. I think probably my favorite Pixar movie, in part because the little girl comes from the wonderful land of Minnesota, um, which is where I'm from. She, uh, you, you guys know how the story goes. She, it's, it's about what happens inside of a preteen girl's head. And if this isn't that scary enough, right? But she's not only dealing with the, just the general emotions of what happens in a preteen girl's head. She has moved from Minnesota to San Francisco. She starts in a new uh, community, a new school, new friends. All of the emotions that just run rampant through her head are just illustrated in such a brilliant way. If you've never seen that movie, I really, really encourage you to do so. But if you have seen the movie, you know that there are five primary emotions that are described in her head. There's fear and anger, disgust, sadness, and joy. But what a lot of people don't know is that the uh, early on in the, the v- development of this movie, they, they attempted to put 26 emotions in her head. 26 emotions, and then they wrestled with, and it was obviously just way too much that they had to boil it down to those five. But here's some of the concept art for some of the emotions that they were thinking of. There's greed. They were going to put greed in there. Irritation. <laughs> gloom. Eeyore could have sufficed for that probably, right? Uh, guilt. Hope. And Love. 
Or as one commentator said, the stuff that nightmares are made of. (laughs) Which I thought was funny. After talking to psychologists and studying up on the human experience, though, they decided that, you know, 26 emotions are way too many. We're only going to do five, but most psychologists were telling them that, you know, there's really only two base emotions. There's really only two base emotions. But for the sake of the plot, of course, they, they couldn't just have two people conversing in the head and doing everything, so they decided to go with the five emotions that they had. But the psychologists agreed for the most part that the two base emotions that we all have, that the human experience is developed out of our love and fear. Love and fear. All other emotions are fruit hanging from one of these two trees, love and fear. The behaviors observed in people when they are generous, altruistic, philanthropic, happy, among many others, these are simply expressions of love, psychologists would tell us. On the other hand, the behavior present when one is angry, for example, aggression, suppression of others, domination, wanting their own way, pointing out mistakes of others, blaming others, All of these have their basic behaviors, their basic feelings in fear. It's the fear of failure. It's the fear of feeling inadequate, the fear of being overpowered by others, of being taken advantage of others, or being taken for granted, losing our importance, losing our status, losing our position. And this fear is projected as aggression, typically, as we suppress other people and we try to rule other people by putting our power over other people. There are other negative emotions, of course. Sadness, anxiety, jealousy, hatred. They, they have a more obvious base in fear, I think. There may be a fear of inadequacy, a fear of performance anxiety, being rejected, not being good enough, not being able to achieve what they want, others being better than them. These are all basic fears that we all deal with. But notice in all of these examples what is being threatened. All these examples that I've just given you of typical fears, what is being threatened in all of these examples? It's my place, it's my role, it's my position It's my standing, I, in other words, am being threatened. It's the loss of self, I think, that is really our greatest fear. And so what do we do? We protect ourselves. We put up barriers. We put up walls of protection to protect ourselves. And what those walls of protection look like often are anger and anxiety and hatred and disgust and dishonor. And so because we are actually protecting the me that is the center of ourselves. Do you guys feel that? I mean, th- th- think about this for, for a minute. Th- th- think about this for a minute. Think about this. What are you protecting when you are anxious? What's really at the heart of that? What's at the root of it? What are you protecting when you're angry? What are you protecting when you're impatient? What are you actually afraid of losing? So there's this ancient story in the Hebrew Scriptures. We call the Hebrew Scriptures the Old Testament. That speaks of how we get this way, how we got this way. See, we're told in the beginning that we're actually created in the image of God. We're actually going to talk more about this on January 13th as we begin a new series. Uh, Between January and Easter, we are actually going to walk through the entire Bible to get the entire story of the scripture laid out before us. And we're going to begin with talking about how we are made in the image of God and what all that means. But for the sake of this morning, the simplicity of this morning, please know that the fact that we are created in the image of God simply means that we are created, that we are created to function in love. And we are created and designed to function best when we eat from the tree of love, when we choose that as our primary place to draw our strength from. But of course, as the story goes, if you guys are familiar with how the story begins in the Bible, Adam and Eve, those first two humans that are described there, they didn't listen. They rebelled against their creator and their purpose to live in love. 
You might be thinking, Ross, I don't think the flip side of fear is love. I think the flip side of fear is trust, and I think that's also true. And so what you need to know is that Adam and Eve, they didn't trust what God had said about them. They didn't trust that when God said, you were created in my image, that you will design to work best, and you will function most rightly when you live in love. They didn't believe that. That love for him, love for God, and love for others would present to them the best life. They believed rather that putting their self first would present a better life. And at the moment of this rejection, the moment of this rejection of this life of love, this flood of shame described in Genesis as being naked, flooded into their lives and into their hearts and into their soul, their guilt was exposed, their rebellion, their sin, it was laid bare before everybody to see. And so what did they do? Well, I think they did what every single person since then has done when we are guilty, when our sin is exposed. They turn to religion. The first act by Adam and Eve when they notice the exposure, when they notice that they are full of shame and that their guilt is being exposed, is to string together leaves, right? They pulled out the sewing machine, they got that needle and thread out, and they sewed together a bunch of thieves and the, the leaves, and they made coverings for themselves. And when that wasn't enough for them, they ran away. They hid. See, the first act of religion that is ever described in Scripture is when Adam and Eve made clothing for themselves to cover up that thing that they did to cover up their shame. And the second act was when they went and ran and hid among the trees. And they call this religion because religion is simply that thing that we do in order to cover up the brokenness that we all know we have. We've all felt guilty. We've all felt ashamed. We've all felt broken. And what do we do? Well, we try to cover that up. It's the commons, the universal human experience. Some do this at a temple or in a mosque or in a church. Other people do it at a bar. Some people do it on the street. We all do something to try to cover up the shame and the guilt and the brokenness that we all know we have. We try to fix the problem ourselves by something that we do. And the reason I beat this into your head like every single week, you guys have heard this before, right? Please tell me you've heard this before and you're paying attention. I say this like every single week, right? Is because I think that even though for us who are followers of Christ, and we know that God did not come to bring religion into the world, that he came to bring a relationship with himself, we know this. And yet how often do we still turn to religion in the face of our guilt? How often do we still turn to religion in the face of our shame? We did something wrong, and so we don't rely on the grace of God and the forgiveness of God to empower me to move forward in a new direction. That's what repentance is called. No, we, we turn to, to covering it up and, and, and running away and, and blame shifting. And so until we as Christ followers can rely on the gospel of God, his forgiveness, his love to change us and to make us more like his son, I'm going to continue to beat this into our heads because this is so very important. And also, it's a universal apologetic because every single person that you encounter in your community, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, is religious. It's a bottom line for everybody. And so this is the beginning of a really powerful conversation that you can have with everybody because we all do this. We all try to cover up the brokenness that we all know we have, the guilt and the shame that we all know we have. You see, most of us in the world still try and cover up and run away and drink down and blame shift rather than admitting, embracing forgiveness. Admitting our sin, embracing God's grace. Fully knowing that because of what Jesus has accomplished on our half that we are forgiven. 
And the penalty has been paid and new life has been given and then we can move on. And so what don't Adam and Eve try and try to do? They try to fix the problem for themselves. And when God asks them what they're doing, you know, why, why are you doing this? Why are you covering it up? Why are you running away? The very first words out of Adam's mouth, and this is so important, guys. Pay attention to this. This is so very important. The very first words out of Adam's mouth ever recorded in Scripture as the reason to why he turned to religion, the reason to why he decided to cover up, the reason to why he decided to run away is because... He was afraid. Fear did it. Fear was the reason why I did it. I didn't trust you, God. And so I didn't live in love. I didn't serve you as you had created me to do. God, I was living in fear. And in that fear, I decided to protect myself, and I covered up my problems, and I ran away from my guilt, and I blamed everybody else. I mean, think about how much self-awareness Adam actually has here. Isn't it pretty incredible? I mean, ladies, just think for a minute. How wonderful would your relationship be with your man if he just had a little more self-awareness? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be really good? I mean, Adam is actually pretty really self-aware here, and it's actually a really good thing. I don't think most people will actually have that much self-awareness. Not only men, but I don't think women have this much self-awareness either. I don't think most people are actually aware of the basic fear within them. And how fear is so often at the heart of so much of what we do. And what begins as fear quickly is converted into aggression. I mean, look at Adam's very next words. It's that woman you put in here with me, God. She gave me some fruit to eat, and I ate it. I mean, hear the aggression behind Adam's voice. God, it's that woman you put in here with me. It's not Eve, my wonderful, beautiful wife. No, that woman you put in here with me, she gave me some fruit. She did it. It's her fault. God, if you're going to spite anyone, if you're going to throw any lightning bolts, don't throw it at me, God. I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's all her fault. I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, not funny enough. <laughs> Casualty where she's sitting, I know. I'm just right-handed, that's all. It's your fault, Courtney. <laughs> you <laughs> uh, we'll, talk. we'll talk later about that. Oh, yeah, you got to hear the aggression behind his voice, the blame shifting that takes place, and it's so natural, but it is driven by fear. It's a fear-driven effort to protect himself as he throws his beautiful wife under the bus. And maybe you've been there, you know, maybe you've been the person thrown under the bus, maybe you're the person throwing other people under the bus in an attempt to protect yourself because fear is driving what you do. And over time, this behavior becomes a habit, and it becomes a default, and it becomes part of our temperament. You know, two weeks ago, I talked about this idea that between you and anything and everything, there is a gap. And that everything and anything could be a relationship, it could be the person sitting next to you, it could be a memory, it could be a circumstance or a situation or experience you're having, it could be literally anything and everything. There is a gap. But the reality for most of us is that over time, as our habits and our temperaments are developed, that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller. To the point where we just react out of fear. Sometimes may we may react out of love, but we react out of fear typically without even thinking about it. And if we want to become people who respond in love rather than in fear, we must acknowledge the gap, allow it to breathe. We must pause between reacting and say, God, I'm going to choose to put a divinely inspired love into that gap. And then I'm going to allow that love to be the filter by which I interact with everything on the other side of that gap. I think some of you have lived your whole life in fear. 
your temperament, your habits, your default has become fear. And that is the song that your life sings. Fear. And fear has become your filter. And you've stuffed fear and you've stuffed self-preservation into that gap. And it's created aggression and apathy and anxiety and depression and loneliness as you've driven people away. It's a need to attempt to control everything. It's doubt about how much you are loved or skepticism about what people's intentions are towards you. It's a failure to be happy and content and satisfied in any given moment. You put fear into that gap and you have let fear be the filter by which you interact with everything. And I think if we're honest this morning, admit that fear functions like an anchor on our soul, doesn't it? You live your life in fear. Doesn't that fear function like an anchor for your soul? Keeping you from moving and growing into God's beautiful creation that he has intended for you? Some of you have, you know, tossed that anchor so back far into the past. Your past mistakes, your past experiences. And that anchor has kept you from moving forward into life. And you just can't seem to forgive that person. And you can't seem to forgive yourself for what you have done or for what other people have done to you. And you cannot move forward then as you dwell on what has been done and what you've done to others. And some people, you know, you, you cast that anchor out into the future, into tomorrow, and you've attached it to the what-ifs. And you're so concerned about the future that you cannot control. And you're so concerned about the future that, that hasn't even happened yet. And you're letting your future sabotage your present. And you're letting your past sabotage your present. Because you're letting fear own you. And so what would happen to your life if you, instead of living through fear, you lived through trust in God's love for you? I mean, how would that change things? Like, literally, think about that. How would that change things in your day-to-day interactions? How would that change things in your relationships? How would that change your household? If instead of living through the filter of fear, you live through the filter of God's love for you? You might say, that sounds really nice. I would love to do that because you feel paralyzed. You feel crippled by fear. But you just don't know how. You just don't know what to do. You don't know how to move forward. You don't know what then you can trust in. And so this morning, I want to look at what God did in Christmas. As we look at our last Fear Not passage, the last conversation that we're going to look at, how an angel has with a character in the Christmas story. If you have your scripture with you this morning, you're welcome to turn it to uh, Luke chapter 1. Otherwise, words will be on the screen. Here's what we're told, starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, just as a little side note for you, a little Bible history for you, Herod actually died in 4 BC. And so most scholars would say that Jesus actually was born in 6 BC, roughly around 6, maybe 4 BC, somewhere in there, because Herod had all the babies two years and younger killed, if you remember that. That's just, you know, throw that into your mind-blown category because we usually think of like, hey, Jesus was born at the turn of the, Jesus was born in zero. What do you mean he was born in 6 BC? Well, we just have our calendars wrong. So, you know, a uh, little side note for you, a little Bible, Bible trivia there for you. Um, in the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. He belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, at this point in history, the priestly class of Israel had grown so large that there were way more priests than there were needed. There were 24 divisions of priests who each served in the temple two weeks, non-consecutive weeks, out of 
the year. And each of these divisions had roughly 18,000 priests in them for roughly 25 priestly duties within the temple. So there are 18,000 priests to serve in 25 responsibilities. So there's a lot of priests not doing a whole lot of things, right? Not only that, the priests were supposed to be taken care of by the tithes and by the offerings that were brought into the temple. And that money then would be divided between almost 450,000 priests working the duties of the temple. Meaning that most priests, when they weren't on duty, went back to their home and farmed the land or worked in the shop somewhere. They did something in order to survive financially because the amount of priests that had uh, the money was being divided for was just way too many. And so they needed additional income to survive. Both of them were righteous. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were blameless according to the law. So the Sabbath regulations, they followed blamelessly. They ate only what was clean. They stayed away from corpses. They washed their hands. They observed all of the purity rituals. They offered their sacrifices at the appointed time. They did everything that was required of them by the law. They were blameless according to the law. And everything that they knew as Jews and even more so as priests, about being in a relationship with God was that if you could be blameless according to the law, if you could do what God had asked you to do, then God would extend his favor to you. If you could be good according to the law, then God would bless you because you were doing what God had asked. So the more religious you actually become, the closer to God you get. And yet, in spite of all of their faithfulness, they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive And they were very old. And so do you know what being very old meant? It meant that they were done. They're too old to bear children anymore. They had had their chance. They weren't able to do it. And now they are done. They tried, but it's too late. For 40 years, they've been trying to have a child. Since Elizabeth was a teenager and they were probably married, they've been trying to have a child. But no, they cannot have a child. And now they're too old. And she's barren. And so there are social and spiritual and economic consequences to all this. Economically, it was disastrous because they had nobody to support them and care for them in their old age. And so Zechariah was thinking, I'm going to work to the day that I am die to support Elizabeth. And that's going to be really hard. I'm going to do my priestly duties at the temple. I'm going to go back and I'm going to farm the land till the day I die because that's the only way that I can support my family. It was spiritually disastrous because barrenness was seen as a judgment for sin. To not be able to bear a child meant that you were cursed by God. And so can you imagine how Zechariah felt as he served God blamelessly? You know, he he, he served God blamelessly. He did everything that was required of him by the law without fault, and yet he still couldn't please God to the point where God would grant him a child. He still couldn't please God to the point where he would remove the curse that he believed was on him. Can you imagine the fear and the trepidation that Zechariah felt? Believing that he and Elizabeth were under God's curse and everything that he attempted to do to appease God had failed, that nothing that he could do to make God like him was good enough? That's a scary place to be. It was socially disastrous because most assumed barrenness was a defect of the woman, and so the Jewish teachers of their day would often um, counsel men to say, you know what, you should divorce this woman and go find someone younger to procreate with because you need to carry on your lineage. And the reason this is so important because if you had nobody to pass on your legacy to, then you'd be forgotten as a people. Your name, your family history would all but vanish into the void of nothingness. They didn't have pictures. They didn't have social media. There was no way to be remembered if you did not have a family to pass down your lineage to and to tell your stories to. 
So without children, there's no stories, and therefore there's no legacy to leave behind. And so during one of these weeks that he was on duty, he was chosen by Lot to go and burn incense at the altar, the altar of sacrifice. Now this is a really big deal, right? Because remember, there's 18,000 priests serving. There's only seven priests who get this during the week that they're serving. So seven in 18,000, I mean, those, those, are, those are pretty bad odds. And that he is chosen by Lot to go in to the altar and to burn incense. And the reason you burned incense in the temple was because the temple always smelled of burnt flesh and slaughtered animal. And so it always had this putrid, horrible smell about it. So you burned incense before and after each sacrifice, and he got this opportunity to go in, to lay the incense on the altar, and to burn it. And for his situation in front of him, right, he and his wife couldn't have children, believing that meant that God did not view them favorably, that God was cursing them. For some unknown reason, God was cursing them. Feeling what it meant in his wife, they were the disgrace of the community, knowing that he wouldn't have any lineage, any children to pass down his name to. And he was just, that, these are all burdens upon his shoulders. Burdens upon his heart. These are anchors upon his soul that he is carrying around. And I think probably with all of this weight that he's carrying, he had probably chosen to put fear within that gap. This is the filter by which he is living through. He is choosing to live in fear. And I think a lot of us have been there. And I think a lot of us may be there this morning. That you choose to put fear in that gap. Because you're, you're afraid that you're not going to have enough money to provide for your family. And you wonder if this Christmas is going to meet expectations for your children. And we're afraid to open up our checking account because we do not want to see how low that number is. And we're afraid to open up our credit card account because we're afraid to see how high that number is. And we're afraid that if we lose our job, you know, what's going to happen? Or if we get sick and we can't go to work and we have to pay for those medical bills, there's no way we're going to be able to do that. All those what-ifs, they pile up. And we're afraid. Just like he was, right? The economic anxiety that came along with him not having children. Very afraid. And then we think about where we stand with God. You know, I've done so many horrible things, we think. You know, how could God ever love me? Certainly God does not look upon me favorable. Look what's happening in my life. If God really loved me, then this wouldn't be happening, we think. And could God really love me after all that I've done or after all that's been happen, uh, you know, been done to me? Could God actually ever really love me? And I've had so many religious leaders tell me that, you know, in order to get on God's good side, in order to get in their God's graces, I need to attend a church, I need to give my tithes and offering, I need to go to communion and say my prayers and go to the confession booth, and I need to do all these things, but, but I don't do those things. And so am I cursed by God? Is that why this is happening to me? Does God not actually love me? Am I cursed by God? And then you add this to the way that everybody looks at me and and I, and, I, and I think about how I'm viewed and how I think I'm judged, and man, it's paralyzing, isn't it? That fear, like an anchor on your soul, keeps you from moving forward into a life that is abundant, and it weighs down. You see, while Zechariah is alone in the temple, he's trying to hold in his frustrations. He's doing all that he can to live a blameless life, hoping that if he can just do what is required of him, God will remove this curse and perhaps grant him a child. He's trying to maintain stability amidst the fear of dying without a legacy. He's trying to, you know, forget the voices of disgrace that he hears from his community about him being barren. And in light of all this fear, 
an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord who we later learn is Gabriel is standing on the right side of the altar. He appears out of nowhere. Now, whenever you see a detail like this, the right side of the altar, you have to ask yourself, why is this important? You know, why did the author choose to put this in there? And the only time in Scripture that an angel appeared on the right, time, on the right side of the altar uh, was in the prophet Zechariah, coincidentally enough, in chapter 3. And we know that angel better, better as the Satan, And the Satan is standing there. He's an angelic figure standing there on the right side of the altar, and he is spewing lies over Israel. And he is trying to make Israel convinced of all the fear, right, that you are not good enough, that God doesn't love you, that your stain is too dirty, it'll never be removed. He's speaking all of these lies over the people of Israel. And Satan is not manifest here in the the temple at this time, but certainly the voices of Satan are heavy upon Zechariah's heart. I mean, Zechariah, you can, you can keep trying, but you're never going to be good enough. Otherwise, God would have given you a child already. I mean, what you do will never be enough. Otherwise, God would have given you a child already. I mean, Zechariah, don't you hear all the voices of all the people when they hide their children from you because you're cursed by God and they won't let their children come near you because you're a disgrace among the community? Zechariah, your name is going to be forgotten into the void of nothingness, because you don't have a child. I mean, all of this fear, all of these things that Satan is speaking over him, what is about me, I think Zechariah is saying, that God is doing this to me? What have I done to deserve this? You know, what, what, what have I done that God is cursing me? And then when Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. Of course he's startled, right? Because you're in an empty room, and all of a sudden there's another man there. You're going to be startled. You're going to be gripped with fear. And the angel responds, and in the King James it says, fear not. But in our version this morning it says, do not be afraid. Zechariah, you have let fear sabotage your life for too long. we have any Zechariahs with us this morning? Anybody let fear sabotage your life? I mean, let's just be honest, right? Let me just think about it. You let fear sabotage your life. You look about all the things that you're afraid of in your past and it's crippling your present. You think about all the what-ifs that are still yet to come that you can't control and you can't predict and you let those sabotage and cripple your present. The angel says, you have let fear sabotage your life. Please, Zechariah, do not let fear consume you any longer. You see, so much is going on in Zechariah's head and heart. Sure, he's startled, but he's thinking He's afraid of all of the burdens that he's carrying around, the fact that he thinks God is cursing him, the fact that he thinks he's a disgrace among his community, the fact that he thinks his name is going to be lost into the void of nothingness. And for their whole lives, you know, (laughs) Zechariah and Elizabeth were always the ones going to baby showers, and yet they never had a baby shower for themselves. They were always the ones who watched their friends' kids grow up, and then their kids had kids, and their kids had kids. And they were able to pass on their stories and pass on their legacy, but they couldn't. And then, you know, when their friends got together for playdates and it was so fun and so cute in the beginning and they, like, you know, out of pity invited them to come along, but then over a while it just kind of got weird and so they were stopped inviting to those playdates because they didn't have kids. And they felt like they were cursed because they were ostracized from their community. And the angel comes into this fear and he says, do not be afraid. Do not let fear consume you any longer. My friend, your prayer has been heard. For 40, God, for 40 years, this prayer that you have been praying to God has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. So Zechariah, for 40 years, you've been 
letting fear paralyze your life. Letting fear paralyze your life, believing the lie that because life isn't going the way that you wanted it, that you must be cursed by God. Because this thing is happening to you, because these circumstances are true of your life, that you must be cursed by God. You believed that lie and you put fear into that gap. You believe the lie that God's love for you is conditional upon your behavior, what you do or what you don't do. And you've let your circumstances dictate your view of God. And today, the angel says, Zechariah, I want you to start making a different decision, a different choice. I want you to make a different choice. I don't want you to put fear into that gap any longer. I want you to insert trust, put love, and more importantly, trust in God's love for you into that gap and see what that does to reverse the life in which you live. See, know for certain that God's love for you does not equal what is happening to you. And this is true of all of us, my friends. God's love for you does not equal what is happening to you. But all Zechariah knew for his whole life was longing, unfulfilled longing. And so he doubts. I think as we all probably would. He'd been conditioned his whole life to, to live in fear. And so he questions naturally what the angel says. He's going to question, really? I, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to put my trust in anything other than the fear in which I know from what the people are telling me and what I think about God and the fear of losing my legacy. I have no idea what else to do. And because of this doubt, the angel says, you are going to be mute until your son John is born. In the meantime, the angel also goes and visits Mary. Mary, um, he is, she, she is told that she is going to birth the Savior of the world. And in that same conversation, the angel says, by the way, your relative Elizabeth is also pregnant. And she's six months along, even in her old age. And so Mary is like, wow, you know, to confirm what this angel is saying to me, maybe if I go and see that my cousin really is pregnant, then that will be proof that the angel is telling me the truth. And so she goes and she visits Elizabeth. And as she enters the home of Elizabeth, John does a somersault inside of Elizabeth's womb. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are just, they're just overwhelmed by the fact that the mother of their Savior has visited their home. That the one who would rescue humanity will soon be born into the world. See, the rescuer is coming. God is on his way. So please understand the implications for Zechariah here. Understand the implications for his soul and for his heart and that weight that, he is, that is anchoring him down and you know, keeping him from moving forward into a hopeful future. Zechariah realizes in this moment that God is taking the initiative to rescue him. That God takes the initiative to rescue us. And if that is true, he begins to think, and we need to think as well. And so let this seep into you a little bit this morning. If that is true, then what is all this religion in order to gain God's favor thing all about? Why do we do that? You know, why do we rely on our attempts to fix ourselves when God is coming to the rescue? And if that is true, then are you saying that God doesn't actually want our religion? Yes, that is what I'm saying. God wants you in a relationship with himself. And are you saying then that God is actually coming down into our mess and in love is going to bring us out of it and through it? Yes, that is what I am saying. And are you saying that this love is unconditional? It's not based on my circumstances or what I have done or, or what has been done to me? Yes. And, and is this valid for me to rest my identity in this love? Absolutely. Rest your identity in God's love for you. Are, are you saying that I don't have to be afraid of what others think about me because I know what God 
thinks about me? Yes. That is what Zechariah is learning here. That I don't have to let financial fear consume me because the God who distributes wealth is actually on my side, that he actually cares for me. Yes, that is what Zechariah is hearing here. And yes, my friends, that is exactly what we need to learn as well. That in response to the rescuer coming, we can have trust in God. You see, Zechariah hears all this, right? He hears what the angel says. He begins to apply it to, a, to his life. He sees that the rescuer is coming, and, and it begins to flip everything that he knows about God and how he exists in the world and how he functions in the world. And then he says this incredible thing. Zechariah says this in response to the birth of Jesus coming into the world. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies. So redemption, salvation, mercy, rescue, all through this infant child named Jesus. But what is most fascinating, I think, is how he says we can move forward with life because of all this taking place. God is coming to our rescue. And he then has enabled us to serve him. How? Without fear. That is why God has come to the rescue, right? Zechariah looked at a pregnant Mary and he equated the arrival of Jesus with the reversing of Genesis 3. You know, we, we, we have been preconditioned to put fear into our gap. And we've let fear dictate how we interact with everything in this world. And that fear often takes the place of, in the form of aggression and impatience and apathy and anxiety and all sorts of other things. But we have put fear into that gap and, and God comes along and says, I do not want you to live in fear any longer. That is not how I designed you. That is not how I have created you. I want you to trust in me. But don't just trust me because I'm saying so, right? Trust me because I am proving my love for you and sending my son into the world. Zechariah just didn't hear a message to say, hey, trust in God. He looked at the Savior Jesus born into the world and said, God is in pursuit of me. And if that is true, then that is proof that God does in fact love me and I do not have to put my faith in fear anymore. I can put my faith, my trust and the love of God for me. You see, my friends, God's pursuing love and sending Jesus proves to you and to me and to everybody that we can actually trust his love for us. It's not just something you try really hard to imagine or to believe. You look at what God has done in Jesus Christ and you say, if that is true, then God does in fact love me. And I don't have to look at what's happening around me and I don't have to look at my circumstances and equate that with how God loves me because I know that God loves me despite everything that's happening to me. Because I am going to leverage my belief in God's love and the person of Jesus. The infant, the death, the resurrection at all. That is where I'm going to place my trust. And so friends, do you believe it? Are you going to place your trust in your fear and let that dictate your life? And by the way, how's that going for you? Or are you going to look at the infant child Jesus and understand that God is coming to your rescue 
and that you can put your trust in God's love for you. I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this for just a brief moment more as we sing one final song. There's a, there's a text in the Gospel of John that speaks to this, and it's such a profound text. It's such a simple text, but it's a text that we all probably know pretty well. Even if you don't know this text me- memorized by heart, you, you've heard it a hundred times probably. You've seen it displayed places. You've seen it written on professional football's cleats, professional football players' cleats. It's John 3.16. It's a simple and beautiful text. It says, For God so loved. He loved you. He loved the world. And what does he do then? He gives. He goes in pursuit of. He chases down. He gave his one and only son. That whoever would trust or believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I mean, I mean, notice this, right? That is God's love for you. It's not like, you know, I, just, I like you a little bit, and if you would just do a little bit more, then I would like you some more. If you were just a little better people, then I would maybe like you and approve of you more. Then I would extend a little bit of favor some more. If I, you could just be better people, then perhaps maybe you could come into my good graces. No, God so loved the world that he gave, that he came in pursuit of the world. And Paul actually adds something really interesting to this. In chapter 5 of his letter to Romans, he says that it was while we were still sinners. It's not when we had our act cleaned up. It's not when we were good enough. It's not like we had done a little more than God finally says, finally, you've crossed over that line. You've tipped the scale in your favor. Now I can come to the rescue. Now, it is while you are still a mess, it is while you are still broken, it is while you are still dead in your sin that God sent his one and only son into the world so that whoever would trust, place our trust in God's love for us, that we would say, I've lived in fear too long and I do not want to live in fear any longer. I want to live in the abundant life that is offered me. And I'm going to trust in God's love for me. I'm going to trust in his love for me that is proven in his sending his son into that manger for me. And the result, he says, we'll have abundant life. And so I don't know who of you is in a situation this morning where you feel paralyzed by fear. I don't know who of you feel paralyzed and crippled by your past mistakes by your future what-ifs, who are controlled by aggression and anxiety and impatience and all the other forms that this fear takes. I don't know where you guys are at this morning, but I do know that we as humans have defaulted to we are afraid. And that for too many of us, we live out of that filter. And what God so badly wants for you is for you to trust in his love for you and to reinsert that trust in his love for you into that gap so that as you interact with everything and anything in this world, you might use his love for you as the filter by which you do so. And so if you're at a point this morning where you don't want to live in that fear any longer, then 
I want you to pray with me this morning, and then I'm going to extend an invitation to you. And this really is for all of us, right? Because I, I think so often we like, well, you know, I, I did that once. You know, I, I said that prayer once. I committed my life to Jesus once. You know, I said no to fear, and I said yes to trusting in God once. But I think the reality is, and I said this at the very beginning of this message, if you remember, we so often default to fear. We so often, even as Jesus followers, default to religion. And so we need to preach ourselves this message every single day. Every single moment, we need to wake up and repeat John 3.16. We need to repeat the gospel of God's love for us every single day and rely on his grace, not on our religion. If we want to become more like him and live as people who put love as the filter by which we interact with everything, we need to preach ourselves this message every single day. And so I encourage everyone to pray along with me. Jesus in heaven, I know, I know, Father, I admit, I claim, I acknowledge, I own up to the fact that I have lived in fear. And that fear has driven me to be religious, and that fear has reli- driven me to be aggressive and impatient and full of anxiety. I've allowed fear to paralyze me from moving into the direction and your calling upon my life. And I know the consequences, Father. I, I, know, I know what it's done to me. I know what it's done to my relationships. I know what it's done to my job, my, my motivation. I know what it's done to everything about me, Father. I feel like my soul has an anchor tied around it, and it is trapped. And so, God, I confess that to you this morning. I confess all the times that I've tried to fix this problem myself. And, I, and I've tried in really horrible ways, Father. I've tried to make myself feel better about myself through doing really, really horrible things to people, Father, and I know that breaks your heart, and so God, I, I apologize this morning for being driven by fear. And instead, God, I, I, want to, I want to live in the way that you've created me to live and designed me to live, which is to trust in your love for me, and God, I know that's really hard sometimes for me to do, but you say, You say that you love me and that you are in pursuit of me and you're chasing after me and this is proven in you sending your son to this earth. So Father, I look to you and what you are doing on my behalf and what you are accomplishing for me through Jesus. And Father, that is what I'm choosing to place my trust in this morning. And help me to do it, Father, every single day because it's going to be a challenge as I wake up to do it again tomorrow. But I pray, Father, that I would remember that you so loved me. In spite of my sin, Father, in spite of my brokenness and my mess, you so loved me. That you sent your Son into this world to be born in a humble manger and to die a slave's death and to take upon himself my sin and to rise from the dead so that he could offer me eternal life. God, I place my trust in that this morning. I believe that is true of me this morning, that is true of Christ this morning. And I pray, Father, that you would flood my heart and my life with your abundant life as you unchain me from my past and from my future, Father, and you allow me to live fully present in your love. Amen. So next week we have a baptism. And if 
you prayed that this morning with sincerity of heart and you have experienced now a dispositional change, like you're not going to live in fear any longer, you want to live in the life of Christ, then my friends, you need to be baptized. It's It's a celebration of new life. It's an opportunity then for the body to look at you and say, wow, you know, this is going to take a body to do this. And so, you know, when you feel like fear is speaking into you to say, hey, you know what, look at your life, man. God can't really love you because otherwise, why would this be happening to you? This community, you know, after a baptism, we come around people who are baptized and we say, no, 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 let's, let's remember that our life circumstances do not equate God's love for us. And then when you hear the voices of, the, of your community saying, no, you're not good enough. No, man, why would God ever love you? Look at you. Now, we can come around you, man. You have a community. You're being adopted into a community of people who are going to remind you that God loves you and sent his son into the world to prove it. And so if you've never been baptized as a believer in Christ, I would really, really encourage you to do so. We don't do this very often, and so if you've never done it, I would really, really encourage you to do so. Next week is that opportunity to come and let me know that you'd like to be baptized. We want to celebrate with you. If you committed your life to Christ for the first time this morning, I would love to celebrate with you even today. I have some resources for you. I would love to um, help you along in this journey and get you plugged into some group life to help you to continue to grow into Jesus' likeness.